When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Que sera, sera. So, welcome to You Are Going to Be Fantastic. My name is Ann Foster. I'm Jenny Ryan. And we're here to bring you another story of somebody who shares with us what they thought their life would be like and what their life is like and how they feel about it. And full disclosure, it's a library person. We've done a lot of library-related interviews. Um, we, But they're all interesting they're people. They're all interesting. They're all great. It just seems like a lot of people work at the library. And so today, I got an article sent to me via the Facebook from my friend Tracy, and it is the news that Bob Egan is leaving Blue Rodeo to work at the Kitchener Public Library. So Blue Rodeo is a Canadian, very famous Canadian rock band. Yeah, so famous in Canada, big in Canada. Um, and yeah, this guy has been in Blue Rodeo for 17 years, and um, he was in Wilco before that, and I guess he's giving it all up to be something called the manager of community relations and manager of community connections and development so i find this interesting what i like about this man's story uh bob egan is that he i was like does this man qualify is he just doing this because he's a famous person like that does not seem like a good business model to right just it's have, like, like a famous person didn't nyu hire james franco to be a professor or something yeah like, like what's yeah. this guy's cred so it looks like he actually used to live in chicago he has a master's degree in something called industrial psychology or something industrial organizational psychology which i don't understand industrial organizational psychology and he worked in he worked in um chicago for a long time in the 80s and 90s doing some sort of corporate consulting well i guess if he is a he knows about industrial psychology he knows about the psychology of workers well he was an employee attitude researcher employee attitude researcher so anyway this sounds anyway but here's the thing i love about it rock star he did this before he was a rock star so he did all this before he was a rock star and then when he turned 40 he joined wilco and then toured with wilco and then he joined blue rodeo so he was like a suit in offices doing like office stuff and then he changed at age 40 at age 40 he, so this is like not even me yet he he became a rock star which i think is really cool inspiration to us yeah. all so became a rock star and then he traveled around and was a rock and roll musician and now he um is leaving all of that to he suddenly he has a baby a new baby he's 60 years old he has a new baby and he's gonna work put you know put on pants and a jacket and go be a manager at the library and i just feel like People talk, you know, like it's nice to think that you can have a very varied, lots of fairies kinds of careers. How old did you say he is? He's like 60. Yeah. So at age 60, you'd be like, okay, now I'm embarking on a new chapter, not just like now I, the book is closing. Yeah. No, I just think it's great. And I think it's really nice to, to think about you can have such different kinds of adventures as well. It doesn't have to be the same adventure it doesn't have to be i got a new job at a new rock band it's not yeah he's not he's gonna be something else well and it's not like he got a job being like working at a rock label like he's doing this yeah at the library at the library so i feel like if he's listening bobby again if you would like we would love to talk to you about your adventure but today we are talking to another library human and i want to just give everybody a heads up um you you may know from some of our previous episodes that jenny and i have a dream 
a dream to buy a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> we have a micro. We have one microphone that we, one of your friends generously gave us to borrow. My friend John Dumont lent us a microphone. And so we have one good microphone. We Our dream is to get a second. Um, Jenny and I are each talking to microphones now, but that is due to the kindness of CFCR FM in Saskatoon, the community radio station who lets us use their space sometimes to record in. But we would like to be able to go and be mobile and interview people with like maybe we'll go to kitchener and find bob egan exactly go on a, on a little road trip mm-hmm. but um so I, i'm saying all this to to explain the interview you're about to listen to with uh jim drake who is a a multifaceted person who works for the library and we talk about a lot of other stuff too and so i went to do a an interview with him at his house because jenny was on vacation when we had scheduled this um, and it turns out I had plugged in the fancy microphone to my laptop and everything seemed to be working, but it turns out, in fact, the interview was recorded by the microphone from my laptop, mm. not the fancy microphone at all. So you can hear it, but the audio quality will be not to the standard you might be used to hearing our podcast with. It's, yeah. But not great. But yeah. it's not terrible. It's just not. You can hear it. It just kind of sounds like you're listening to a Skype conversation and sometimes someone in the background of his house, goes in the kitchen and starts washing dishes. And right. you can hear it very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, it's a very interesting interview, so I, I hope that you can get past the audio issues and enjoy it. Um, and perhaps one day Jenny and I will, will have a, a microphone that doesn't have so many buttons and we'll be able to use it more easily. Yeah. So uh, enjoy this interview with Jim Drake. So, welcome to You Are Going to Be Fantastic. My name is Anne Foster, Jenny Ryan, still on holiday, so I'm here interviewing by myself, but I am with a guest, so I'm not truly alone. Um, I'm joined today by Jim, who is one of our, another interviewee who has listened to the podcast, and he's very eagerly offered himself to the interview. I know, I'm having second thoughts. <laughs> having second thoughts. Anyway, keep, keep. So, welcome, Jim. Um, welcome. Well, thank you. So, you've listened to some of the episodes of the podcast I have. already. I have. So you kind of know we're here talking about, you know, as a younger person, where you thought you'd be, where you are now, how that makes you feel. Can do you want to disclose your age-ish? I am your decade. I'm in my sixties. Jim is in his sixties, yes. and you're still working, not retired. That's correct. So, well, I guess the first question is so. Thinking back to yourself, just finishing high school age, you know, 17, 18, what, what was your plan? Did you know right out of high school what you were going to do and what your life was going to be? Uh, no. To put it simply, no. Um, I think my only plan was short term, and that was to get a, out of my house and away. And, uh, and where was this? What city were you in? I was or living town? in Saskatoon at the okay. time. And I had just graduated from high school. And in my family, sort of an upper middle class family, was, uh, it, was, it was a given that one went off to secondary education. Mm-hmm. And my two sisters, my two older sisters, uh, had all gone that route and were actually out in the world working using those degrees in some cases. And so then there was me, and I didn't have a clue. So were you the youngest? I was definitely, I was the baby. Okay. Yes. By at least five years, I think. Yes. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. Didn't have a clue. I was very passive, but I knew I had to get out of town. And the only way to really do that, um, 
legitimate is the wrong word. Um, to do that safely inside of my family was to go to some sort of post-secondary institute. And uh, my high school marks were very poor. I basically scraped through on the basis of being a jock. Really? I was kind of a hippie jock. Oh, like what sport? Um, every sport. Every sport? Yes. Wow. I played every sport. Well, by the end of grade 12, I was only playing basketball and volleyball. And I'd stop doing all the other sports I did. Yeah. Anyway, and that, shamefully, is what got me through school or otherwise would have failed. They, they uh, tutored me. They did all kinds of... It was crazy. But anyway, when I think about it. So there I was, grade 12, uh, mediocre marks, um, and uh, trying to get out of town. And um, one of my teachers, I, I had taken um, a history of... English lit class, it was sort of brand new, um, which, which I actually quite enjoyed. And I also took a creative writing class. And the instructor in one of those cases said, well, you know, you're probably good enough to be a journalist. I went, okay. So grabbing at straws or uh, ladders or whatever, whatever's required, I looked around and there was a course in Calgary at the tech thing. And they don't worry about academics as much in tech schools. And so I applied and got in. And so the following year I went off to Calgary and uh, took journalism. <laughs> so <laughs> Did I want to be a journalist? No. I, uh, I just wanted to get out of town. Well, like so many people, I think you just sort of blindly choose. One chooses, like, here's my career you're path. Supposed to, you're supposed to do something. Right? When you're 17, 18, like, how can you know, really? Yeah. It's cool when people do know. So you went to Calgary. And you were what, eighteen years old. Eighteen years old, yeah. and it was a, um, it was a very educational experience, but not because I learned anything about journalism. I happened to hit a year with a whole bunch of people that were quite a bit older than me, and uh, a lot of them had different degrees, and a lot of them had. I mean, I'll give you some examples. There was a gentleman who had worked for five or six years for the Georgia Strait, which is a alternative. I think it still exists. Yeah, in Vancouver. Vancouver. And he had grown quite wearisome, wearisome of the uh, of uh, the strait because it had become, uh, as he put it, a Maoist rag. Anyway, and he liked writing music reviews mm -hmm. and movie reviews and things like that. Anyway, so he decided he needed some legitimate uh, credentials. So he was there. There was a guy who had spent two years, almost died in India. Um, I think he's still a journalist, actually. But anyway, this, he was a curious guy. He was a, he was a kind of a polyglot. He, he picked up on languages very quickly, so he liked to travel. And he had ended up in India, and he was so good at assimilating the culture that when he grew sick from the opium dens, um, they thought he was a local, so they put him in the local hospital and where he was dying, essentially. And a guy that he had met, an English guy, an Englishman, happened to be walking through the ward and saw him and saved his life essentially from his parents and he got so I met him three months after this event. Mm -hmm. So they were all like this. This whole group of people. So older people mostly? Older, like in their some cases most of them were at least twenty or older. And so I was this kid who knew nothing about anything about the world and I was sort of thrown into this den of uh of people that'll be can you stop it for just yeah, a moment? Yeah, for sure. That might be Gwen trying to get at the door. Henry, where are you? 
How we doing? Good. God. <laughs> oh, see, there's there's levels and everything. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, opium den India guy. Yeah. yeah. Etc. I mean, they were all people like that. I could go on. Each one had a story, except me. You know, it was just this weird kind of uh, marginal person, somewhere between a jock and kind of a hippie, and uh, and them. And I was eighteen, and you know, didn't have a clue about the world really. Mm-hmm. So, so there was lots of interesting things that I learned that had nothing to do with journalism, which I almost immediately hated. And the only thing I liked was they gave us, because it was a tech place, they, they had a very practical course. They, had, they taught photography at the time. They were still analog photography. And they also taught uh, printmaking, commercial printmaking, which I loved. So the only two classes I ended up taking by the end of the year was printmaking, or, you know, commercial printmaking and uh, photography. Had you been interested in art as a younger person? Well, I, I drew cartoons, not exceedingly well, and uh, had produced some, because there was that sort of head comic thing when I was, you know, in my teens, and uh, I'd been involved in making some of those, but not, uh, sort of, not passionately, mm-hmm. that's for sure. And during my year in journalism, I also, at some point, had discovered that I had been really healthy all my life because I'd done all these sports all the time. And suddenly I was in a place where all I really did was drink and do questionable other activities and didn't do any exercise. And by two-thirds of the way through the year, I kind of discovered that I was just failing. I was just, a, I felt ill all the time. I couldn't sleep, etc. And I realized, I need to do something. So I actually joined intramural sports. Mm-hmm. And through intramural sports, I met, uh, because appended to this, uh, this was uh, SATE, Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, was the Alberta College of Art. And I met all these guys from uh, the Alberta College of Art that were also playing intramural. In this case, I think it was volleyball we were playing, yes. And we got to talking, and this one guy says, well, show me, show me something, because I was still drawing occasionally, like cartoons and stuff. He showed me, he says, well, you should go to art school. They obviously don't want to be here. And like most things in my life, I just fell into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I applied, and and then worried about telling my parents, you know, that I was about to go off to art school. I mean, journalism was legit. It's a career. Yeah, that's right. There's there's real things there. and uh, But they were actually very supportive. I think it has to do with being the baby of the family. You get away with murder, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, then I went to art school. Still in Calgary. Still in Calgary. So I went to Alberta College of Art for like four years, and it was uh, it was a spectacular time. We used to call it winter vacation. And it was probably the first time in my life that I actually worked really hard at anything, except for sports, actually. Usually I was a pretty hard-working sports person. But, but that was physical, but mentally. And, and you know, kind of combined those two things that I was good at. I mean, my brain wasn't very good, but um, I was good with my hands. Mm-hmm. So, so what kind of art did you study? Drawing? Well, initially, the whole plan was is I was be- going to become, once again, a commercial artist. And I think that's why I sold it to my parents. Right? So like drawing for like the fronts of cereal boxes? Yeah, and that sort of whatever. Thing? Yeah, just yeah. ad copy and, and so on. And uh, at that time, uh, most uh, there were no computers, right? There was no uh, computers to make. There was no uh, Photoshop or anything like that. So they taught uh, 
illustrative drawing and uh, making stuff camera ready um, for magazines, books, whatever. And actually, they had a, they had an excellent course, as I subsequently found out. Um, most of the people I went to school with ended up in New York, and uh, and so on. But I didn't go that way, did I? So the first year was general, and you got to do a whole bunch of different things, you know, sculpture, painting, drawing, uh, fabrics. They were a very famous fabric studio there, uh, jewelry, you name it, and advertising art was what they called it at that time. And so I did all for, and it became very apparent to me by by the end of the year that no, I didn't want to be an advertising person. <laughs> And uh, ended up uh, taking uh, fine art painting, but I mostly drew. Anyway, yeah, so I did that for four years. And, and you completed that degree? Yes. And I, uh, it wasn't a degree at the time, it was just a diploma. Okay. So I actually had to go back to school to get a, a degree, but um, it was fairly, it was quite, it still is quite a recognized place. You can now go there and get a, a Bachelor of Arts or whatever. Mm -hmm. At that time, it took about. It was about a year, I guess. It took me to accumulate enough credits to also get uh, a BA. So <laughs> you have your four-year certificate diploma, diploma. diploma at the time, yeah. And and then what? And then what did I do? Oh, yeah. really good question. Um, there's no jobs in the art world, as you probably know. Um, even at that time, I can't remember what the statistics were. It was. It's pretty high, though. So for every master's degree out there, uh, there was, uh, for every 400 master's degree, there was like maybe one job or a 0.5 of a job. So that was pretty unusual to get a job. And to become an artist that actually makes money off of his art, mm -hmm. um, I was once on a committee that uh, determined, um, you know, what, what the economics of the art world was. And the usual economics in most situations, like being a librarian or being a plumber or whatever, is like a pyramid, right? So there's a whole bunch of people at the bottom and so on, and then it gets up to the pinnacle. The art world is a flat line across the bottom. Mm -hmm. And right in the middle, there's a single spike that goes right. right. It's beautiful, actually. Um, but it's a world, if you live in that world, it's very rapacious and ambitious and so on. But everybody's in the same boat. You know what I mean? It's like living with a bunch of poor people. You don't really know how poor you are. Did you have a job while you okay, were going so, to school? Uh, in the summertime, I used to work in the mines. My father was a mining engineer, so hence the upper middle class upbringing. So the thing, um, I could actually think of it as a possibility because I came from such, I came from privilege. I was white, upper middle class, etc., etc. But anyway, I worked in the mines in the summertime. I was a heavy equipment operator. Which was lots of fun too. I like that. I could have done that for physical time. activity again. Pretty much, yeah. Except with huge machines, which is so much fun. But uh, I could have done that many times. I thought because of a variety of things that happened in as I was growing up, I probably would have been happiest. I came to this realization when I was, I think, in my late thirties, that if everything had gone tickety boo in my upbringing, I probably would have been a high school, the, the worst possible thing, the high school gym. The teacher, but I would have been a happy person. Um, I chose not to be that person, but anyway, um, shooting, shooting ahead. So I did that in the summertime, and then when I left school, I was in a relationship, and uh, I was going to just go. What my plan was is to go back, work another 
six months in the mind, maybe do some traveling and, you know, have some money. But I didn't do that because of the relationship. And so I stayed there and I became, um, I lived in a place called Eau Claire in Calgary. I don't know if you know Calgary. Yeah, yeah. Oak City. So Eau Claire now is this built up, lovely place. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was just a bunch of old houses and parking lots because they were awaiting uh, approval to actually develop that area. It was an area worth an incredible amount of money in terms of real estate and so on. But um, So they had a property manager and a maintenance guy. And the maintenance guy was my friend. And he left, and I became the maintenance guy. So that's what I did for a while. And he came back, and they made me the property manager. So I suddenly had this job in which I would, once a week, go down to the huge... It was owned by uh, Oxford Development Group, I think they were called. They owned most of that property down there. And I would go down once a week and sit in this huge office and talk to my boss, so to speak, about what was going down. (laughs) It was hilarious. I lived a very odd life at that point. So you were like 23, 24? I guess so, yeah, somewhere in there. And the relationship continued and um, was, frankly, problematic for, for many reasons. I'm, I was very much a person who... Uh, I was quite passive, and I was a bit of a fixer, and I, I just... When things happened, I would just sort of go along with them catch my drift Mm -hmm. so I would fall into things so when you keep asking you know did you have a plan no never never had a plan I just you know hope for the best Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's how I carried on so anyway that went on for a couple of years and I still tried to make things and the person I was having a relationship with was having was a year behind me in art school so uh, we were in Calgary that whole year and uh, the two of us together made some pretty fabulous things. And I did it almost anonymously. That was the other curious thing. So it's the 70s. Um, I, what would characterize me? As a person who pretended he didn't have any ambition. And ambition made me uh, uncomfortable entirely. So it was really great. I, was, I became this anonymous artist behind her, so to speak. The... the the reverse of the woman behind the man thing. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so we made things together, and I never took any credit for it. it just didn't, I didn't, still not very important to me. But uh, So that went on for a while, and we ended up, we moved to Vancouver. Oh, but before that, sorry, before I left there, I got a job as a cook in a restaurant. Again, through a guy, it was through my property management, a guy, two of the people I was property manager, saying, well, you know, and I was trying to get out of this gig, being a property manager, which I didn't really like. He said, why don't you come and cook? So I did. It was a local, little, quite a large restaurant. And that was fun. It was again, physicality and uh, mm-hmm. um, fine motor skills. It was great. So uh, I did that. And through that, uh, we moved to Vancouver. So in the meantime, you might wonder, am I actually making things still? And I was. I had to kind of reduce everything down to sketchbooks and things that wouldn't make a mess. And I won't say why that is, but that's that's basically where I ended up. And So drawing. Yeah. I always drew more than I painted, actually, at that time, anyway. Painting was kind of messy. You know, like, I don't know. 
I painted quite a bit when I was in art school, but it was, I wouldn't call it very good painting. Like, I, it, the, best, the best stuff I did in art school were big, huge pastel drawings, um, sort of street scenes, and almost cartoonish. I kind of got back to cartooning uh, when I hit third and fourth year. But anyway, I was reduced to a, you know, a little sketchbook and a pen, and uh, off we went. And the relationship was incredibly tumultuous. I'll just say that about it. And uh, moved to Vancouver. I started cooking. For, I cooked there as well. Same restaurant, different different location. And that was the height of the cocaine era. So this is like late seventies, early yeah, late seventies, early eighties. I think I made it into. And uh, so the restaurant I worked in was just a crazy place. It was so much fun, but it was it was a crazy place to work. Um, Everybody was either coke to the gills, or they were extremely gay. I think I was one of the few sort of relatively straight people. You're either an alcoholic or a coke fake of cocaine, or something else, and you were either gay or you weren't. And uh, but there's more gay people than, than not, and uh, lots of fun, great people. Um, so I did that for a while, and meanwhile the relationship got worse and worse and worse. And somewhere in there, it was either me or my partner decided uh, we should do a fire lookout. What's and, that? Oh, that's where you go and watch for fires in some remote place. For a job? For a job. And lots of people we know, because of the art world, it's like a perfect job for an artist, right? So you go, you make all this money, and all you really do is you take weather twice a day and you occasionally look for fires and all the rest of the time is your own, right? Seems ideal, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So off we went and I can't remember if it was the first year, I think it was, might have been the second year, uh, there was a pregnancy and my daughter Allison was born and uh, so the relationship, which probably should have ended, didn't because of, of a child and uh, so I can't regret any of those relationships, any any part of that relationship, because of Allison, frankly, who I'm going to go see very shortly, a couple mm -hmm. weeks. So we did that, and I think I did it for five years. It became a way to stay in a relationship and keep my sanity because she didn't always come after the child after Allison was born. Um, it was a place I could retreat to, and. Uh, it's one of those things I don't regret doing, but I don't think I could ever do it again. So explain to me, you're living in a like. shack. Yeah, it depends where you are. Um, where I was was sort of in the middle of Muskeg. And uh, you know what Muskeg is, right? No, don't know what Muskeg is. Um, Muskeg is like layers and layers of different kinds. Of, it's quite exotic, actually. It's layers and layers of different kinds of uh, mosses that can be as high as 15 feet high. And it looks like the uh, oh, and there's these stunted black spruce that could be 100 years old, but no taller than this ceiling. Uh, very almost like they've been bonsai. And to look at it, if you're in the middle of it, it's like being in a microscopic view of a tongue or something or hair. Seriously, it looks like it's weird skin and these really exotic colors and so on. So it's bog basically. It's very moist underneath. Anyway, that's where I was. I was in the midst of that, and uh, I was at various various towers. So all the towers there were uh, this huge sort of steel construction, and there was a cupola at the top, which was about 
eight feet square kind of thing, except it was eight sided, but anyway, about eight feet, and then had a fire uh, spotter in the middle of it and windows all the way around. So sort of like a lighthouse? It looks a lot like, in fact, they had orange and white, I think was the color of the fiberglass that was attached to plywood that surrounded you. And at the base of that, there was a, a cabin of sorts. In some cases, there was a trailer. And um, that's where you lived, essentially. And you would climb up the tower, and depending on what was going on, if it was raining, obviously, you didn't have to be up there. So there was a great deal of spare time. And some of the towers were very remote and were only accessible by helicopter, or perhaps they had an airstrip, so it was accessible by a plane. So you would not see another human being for a month. They would come in, drop off supplies, and leave. And uh, it's a very interesting experience. You find out how bad or good your own company is. <laughs> you get to figure out that, that age-old question, is boredom my friend or my enemy? Um, I made lots of things. But uh, well, the, the first year you go to Offer Tower, you, start, you sort of imagine all those things that you always wanted to do. You know, maybe you wanted to read the Bible because, you know, it's so essential to Western literature. And, or you bring Ulysses or some, you know, some great tome or, or whatever it is. But when you get up there, all of those, whatever motivated you to bring them there falls away because it means nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're so removed from, from the world that uh, you have to you come up with your own priorities. So I used to make I used to make care packages for people I knew that were all over the world, uh, New York, uh, Los Angeles, various other places, art friends of mine, and I would make these. I don't know if they still do this, but um, back when I was a kid, uh, we used to get things from people in the states, particularly like it would be a box at Christmas time of pears, mm -hmm. and they were in those little. So there'd be in these lovely little boxes that had holes cut out for where the pears sat, etc., etc. So I made boxes like that, except with sort of more metaphoric things going on, and uh, sent them off to people. At this point, what did your parents think about what you were up to? <laughs> <laughs> Not much. Um, they were quite concerned about the relationship. And when the child was born, they were, I'm sure, I, you know, I didn't find out till much later, because they were very, I mean, I was... By this time, what was I, 25 or 6? I mean, you can't... It's not like you could tell me what to do or not mm -hmm. do. Um, but they were quite concerned about the whole thing. And, uh, when Allison was born, we got married. And I think that was mostly me trying to appease my mother. I'm not sure, but anyway. Mm -hmm. Which is another... Well, it doesn't matter. We did it. It no longer exists, but... Uh, so we hung on, and I did as I did the fire lookout. We at somewhere in there we were living in Vancouver, but then we moved to Galliano Island in the midst of all of that too, kind of think of it. And uh, so I would go back, and I would cut wood for a living on Galliano Island, me and this other guy. So you know, cords of wood for, for burning in fireplaces. And, that was kind of an okay job. You didn't have to think. And still doing art in your So to speak, time? yeah, mostly. I was still, except for the tower where I would make, oh, God, I buried, it was just, you know, because you go nuts in a tower, essentially. You go, uh, anybody looking from the outside in, and, well, you can ask any of my friends that received letters from me. You wouldn't send a two-page, hi, how are you, letter. You would send a, 
a novella. Like literally, one one was written out. It was 125 pages, like as long as I ever got. That I sent out to some poor sucker out there in the real world who became very concerned about me. But uh, um, yeah, it's a crazy place to go. They they have a lot of suicides there because people go there thinking they can get away from the world, but of course you never get away from yourself, right? And that's what you end up. And it was very valuable from that standpoint for me because I got to look at me without any of the distractions of a bad relationship or the outside world or anything else. And uh, so it was it, for, for that, it was painful at times, but, but a very good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, in the, I think I did that for five seasons. In the fifth season, we were living on Galliano Island, and uh, that particular tower, the last tower I had, actually had a road into it, which I don't recommend. If you're ever doing fire lookouts, never do a tower that has any kind of public access to it. Cause it, just, it was too weird. And uh, I was the person who had the radio telephone. So if there was an emergency, uh, another tower could reach me via radio, and then via this telephone, I could reach help. And uh, one night I was actually talking to my partner on the phone in Vancouver, or in Galliano Island. And I, it's, this year I decided, okay, I can't do this forever. There's a, it's sort of not true that I was completely positive because all the way through all those years, I would occasionally have these epiphanous moments, usually at three o'clock in the morning, saying, and it was simply, I can't do this anymore. I need to do something else. And I'd had one of those moments, and I was gonna move back here. And I'd phone my sister and say, you need to find me a job that has some sort of future, <laughs> which is typical, right? As opposed to me finding it. Yeah. I'd get my sister to do it. And uh, so I discussed this with my partner, and at some point she says, I can't go. I won't go there. And uh, in fact, I've, and she had an affair or something, a bit minor sort of thing. And I went, okay. And I kind of knew it. And it was all okay. It was, it was, it was fine. And uh, so I ended up going back to Galliano for a while, like a couple of months, and then I moved here on my own. So back to Saskatoon, yes. where your family was. That's right. And I moved in with my parents. So at this point, you're like 30 uh, was that, Yeah, I guess I was pretty close to 30, yeah, 29, 28, 29. That was rough, moving back into my parents' house. And I worked for my brother-in-law for a while. And there was a couple of things that kind of lined up. One was a cooking gig, which I really wasn't interested in, and the other one was a sign painter, which I was kind of interested in. So I started doing that for a while at night while I worked. And meanwhile, I had a lot of friends here that were in the art world, like that were now working at places like the Mendel and so on. And uh, so I started in jobs there too, as a preparator. Preparator is a person who puts up shows and things like that. And uh, and I sort of, that was my circle of friends, was all the sort of art world in Saskatoon, so to speak. Which was fun. That was lots of fun. And then my father died, and my mother moved, and I was not living at home at that point. Your mother moved to where? She moved to North Battleford. That's a long story, because my sister's company went bankrupt, and they ended up moving to North Battleford. My mother, they'd always lived here. My other sister lives in Toronto, and had for many years. And so my mother followed them they were quite close. So I was here by myself, and I worked at the Mendel, doing preparatory work. I did some gigs with, uh, uh, at that time it was called the, I think it's changed, it's called Paved Arts now, but anyway, it's AKA Gallery, because I was on their board, I didn't mention that, but anyway, that was all part of being part mm -hmm. of the art community. 
And somewhere in there I met, at the AKA, I met a woman who was a librarian. And she worked at the Saskatoon Public Library. She says, you should work at the library. And I went, I'd never thought of it before. And you have to understand the art world is, at least at that point, I think it still is, very political, very, you know, you're always aware of your upbringing, you know, who you are, and, uh, and that your work has some kind of... Uh, you know, does some good in the world, to put it simply. It's much more complicated than that, but uh, simply that. And the gig at the library, I thought, that's like a perfect job mm-hmm. if you're socially conscious, because it's like, it's unassailable. <laughs> so I think I, I can't remember how long any of this time frame is. Oh, by the way, I'm in another relationship. Another mm-hmm. bad relationship. Because I am good at that. Um, Just going along with situations. Pretty much that were, yeah, very passive, very, and I'm also a fixer and and all the rest of it. Although, Grant, I'll go, he's not a fixer anymore. Anyway, it's true. Took a long time to figure that one out. But um, somewhere in there I applied and it was, by this time I was, what, 88 or something? I applied for, uh, they used to have summer, uh, not summer. Uh, Sunday staff. So I applied for Sunday staff in the children's department. I was also, oh, by this point, I was also teaching at the Mandal, teaching kids art. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, the children's department would be kind of fun. And I had no idea what they did in the library. None whatsoever. I used to go there and sit and read art magazines and things. But um, So I got, I got the job. And the rest is kind of history, I guess. It's mm-hmm. the longest I've ever had a job in my whole life. So you started at the library in 1988. Somewhere in there. And I was on Sunday staff. And, uh, yeah. So I've been there a long time. And just different positions. But yeah, in 2016, many. you're in the children's department yes, again. Sort of, yeah. So I had no idea that they made things there. None whatsoever. And Sunday staff were pretty remote from everyone else. Like, you would work as a casual as well. But I got to know the people in the children's department, which was uh, an interesting place, shall we say, at the time. And But Gary Tisdale was there, right? So I think my first term... Was that in children? I think it was in children's. But then I got a term in IS, and I got a term in fine arts. I even got a term in J.S. Wood. And then what is at the present Joel's job with that 5-6 position, or 5-6, yeah, I guess it is, um, came up. They created it. They used to have an assistant. And so that's the person who does a lot of the programming. And he used to do, well, used to, at that time, the internet had just become. Yeah. And they touted it as that. They thought children should have a presence on their website, etc., etc., and I actually knew some stuff at that time. So when I applied, I got the job and uh, and started doing a lot of programming and working with Gary, and we made things together. It was fun. Puppets and puppets and and backdrops and you name it, yeah, displays and uh, things like that. So it was suddenly I was getting paid to be an art person. Mm-hmm. Uh, a curious thing, many years later, you know, you wonder, like, I, people have regrets about what they do, but again, because I have two children, I can't afford regrets, because they wouldn't exist if I didn't, hadn't done what I did, and, uh, but it was interesting, because I went off to Banff, I don't know, it's about five years ago now, for a 
puppetry workshop. We called it Puppet Camp there. It was so much fun. And it was very intensive. It started at nine in the morning and went all the way till whenever at night. So there was making, there was manipulation, all kinds of cool stuff. And I was surrounded by people much younger than me, mostly women. They were all theater people. There was a, there was a, there was a whole clowning contingent, but there was like a woman who, uh, she had up until recently worked for uh, Soleil, what is it called? Cirque du Soleil. Soleil. And realized there wasn't a ter terribly good future in that if you were injured. And there was a woman who was worked for, I can't remember what the, the level of circus it's called, but the small, like single ring circus that are quite popular in the States. She was like a horse trainer mm -hmm. and a dog trainer and things like that. And she thought one step over to becoming a puppet manipulator, you know? So there was her and these people from all over North America. But anyway, they were all living off of one grant to the next. And, you know, this is their life. It's the right. art life. The art life, yeah. yeah. So then there's me. I was, one, paid to be there. Everything was paid for. My plane tickets, the whole nine yards. So I became like Big Daddy. You want a latte? I'll get you a latte. <laughs> you want a drink? I'll buy you a drink. I'll, uh, you need a cigarette? You got one, you know. So it was lots of fun. But it was interesting because I, I realized that if I discovered that much earlier in life, like drama and working with people in that realm, that would have been so much better. You know, it's like team sports suddenly, except mm -hmm. in an artistic realm, as opposed to the lonely life of the, the art person. And uh, so there was, a, there was a kind of, not, I can't describe it as regret, but it was certainly like if I found that out much earlier, you know, like this one girl that works for, what does she do? She, uh, she makes puppets for like CBC and things like that. She worked in New York on uh, doing, she was the Skinner, they called her, for um, The Lion King. Oh, wow. Like yeah. making those skins. She's just incredibly talented seamstress and yeah. so on. But anyway, she said, so are you feeling like you're going to run away to the circus? Because Gwen went to phone her at night and she goes, you are coming home, right? You are coming home. And I go, yes. Because too late in my life to change, right. change streams to that extent. And I'm quite pleased with my life the way it is, which is part of your question, I suppose. Well, that's one of the, the questions we asked. But how I ended up here, there certainly was no intention involved. There's no... Yeah, no, it's just... None. None whatsoever. I guess I, I had to make choices all the way along, mm -hmm. obviously. Well, just knowing um, the people you knew led to the opportunities absolutely. that led to... But easily, I, you know, I, that epiphany I had when I was in my late 30s that I would have been very happy as a high school gym coach, you know. Um, that could have easily have happened too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, you go to Fire Lookout, the other thing you do there is read books, ridiculous amounts of books, you know, sometimes two novels a day, because you just have so much time. And, uh, and the books I would read, I mean, there's, there's a fun thing. I, you, you'd like to be surprised in a tower. You really, you don't, your intentions coming in, as I've mentioned before, are not what they become when you're actually there and isolated for at least a month. That's, yeah. that's when the craziness starts. And uh, so I was used to, I deal with the extension library out of Edmonton. So I've had extensive uh, dealings with libraries and I'm quite, I've always been quite fond of them. I would send them letters like, just walk down the rows and whatever's at your shoulder height, just pick randomly <laughs> or send me your favorite novels, stuff like that. So I would get this, mm -hmm. it was like getting a gift, you know, to get the surprise. Like I, people I would have never read, uh, 
Annie Tan. We'd never read Annie Tan, and uh, there they were. I read the whole the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, who was the other one? that I still actually read or have read all of them, I think. Um, and they've made movies out of his books, English, strange things. Oh, what's his name? Can't remember. Bad with names now. But uh, anyway, a lot of books I'd never read. And they mm-hmm. say wonderful nonfiction things, things that they just found interesting from the day. I thought, you know, my job, that's what my job is right now, too. You, know, you find interesting books and you know that person, oh, you should read this book, yeah. you know, or you should look at this book. You really find it good. So that's what they did for me. And so I, 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 I never met them until I think it was my penultimate year. I spent some time in Edmonton with a friend and actually went to where they, where they worked and met them all and just shook all their hands and say, thank you very much. Yes. I was very impressed. They were quite pleased because they never see anybody, right? It's an mm-hmm. extension library, right? They just get missives. And, uh, at that time it would have been missives and telephone calls, right? As opposed to anything else. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So something else we always like to ask is when you were five years old. Yes, I thought about that question already. So graduating from high school, you just were intent on going to post-secondary. It was a way to get away. (laughs) Away, in a legitimate way. Yes. Yeah. But when you were a little kid, like five years old, do you have any memory? Probably, I think I think the standard one was fireman. I think I always wanted to be a fireman, but also I was pretty good at sports, so I think I thought I wanted to be a right a professional. Well, did athlete. you ever consider going that route? Um, at some point, you see, my sister was an elite athlete, and she actually played for the national team basketball, things like that. But this five year, five years ahead of me, so she's like a. Part of the reason I think, and this is all guessing at my, my psychology, but um, that she's one of the reasons why I feigned lack of ambition. She was a hard nut to break, right? A hard nut to even come close to um, in regards to sports. But I was quite good at it. Whether I was good enough, I don't know. I was pretty good because I came from Winnipeg, which is a really big sports town, when mm-hmm. I was 12, 13, 12, when I was 12, coming, becoming 13. And I was way better than anybody else simply because I had more training. I mean, I was I'm, I'm fairly was a fairly natural athlete, and uh, but I came from much better training, mm-hmm. and uh, so as a result, I was quite good. But there's some part of my brain that always knew that that it was not because I was superlative. You know what I'm saying? Well, and I think also like the people you met from the circus, being a professional athlete is a finite oh absolutely career. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, put it this way. So I remember uh, Charles Bar- Barkley is a famous basketball player. He was uh, he's not exactly a bad boy, but he didn't really like the questions about, you know, what, what did he have to say to kids, right? And he quite honestly said, um, make sure you get yourself an education and don't listen to me. Listen to your parents. Because what I do is only point zero 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 eight to the, per, you know, to make it to this point. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to make it, kid. The likelihood is so infinitesimally small mm-hmm. that uh, there's no point in touting it as some major thing. I just happen to have this particular skill set that works in this particular thing. It's like Nuri of saying, I know how to do that. I heard, I think I remember the classical belly has 136 moves, I think it's something like that. He said famously, I'm just really good 
about 136 ways for the body to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's it. <laughs> anyway, so I think I knew that that was never a possibility, but it was kind of like a dream. Yeah. And in a sense, you know, and I never played hockey, which is much more realistic, even though the percentages are equally high, but it's much more realistic for a Canadian boy to think along those lines. Basketball was just right. Yeah. There's been two Canadians that have hit the NBA in the last 50 years. So it's really unlikely. Yeah. And also the things I liked, I liked playing basketball. I liked volleyball as well. Volleyball really isn't a professional sport. And anything else I wasn't as interested in. Were you interested in art when you were that young, like five years old? No. I mean, I think I drew stuff. I was, my sister liked to draw. She was quite adept. And that interested me. One of my sisters. I can't remember which one now. Curiously. But anyway. Um, I think no. Mm-hmm. No. What I would do as a kid was very. I, I had odd friends. I had friends over a broad spectrum. So I had these the people I used to sneak out at night with. Mm-hmm. We're all, we call them the scientists. And they liked uh, me and my friend Tim, who was also very physical, because we could do stuff physically that they couldn't. So we could get up into that little vent and put right. in the, the stink bombs. <laughs> And they couldn't do that, but we were really pleased to be around them because they were smart, and that was not that was not from my standpoint it was not considered a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Curiously enough, so I had friends like that, all over the spectrum. So I don't know, but art, yeah, that was never on my radar at all. Yeah, at all. Yeah. So, do you consider your life to be fantastic? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 uh, I don't think I had much to do with it other than <laughs> participating in the event. Yeah. You're just kind of there and took the opportunity. Yeah, there's no, presented. you know, I I meet people like that sometimes who who are very driven and have no. I mean, you know, Gwen, for example, you know, I mean, she wanted to be a librarian from the age of twelve, mm-hmm. and here she is. So, but I never had anything like that. I remember, curiously enough, and I'll say this for the public in terms of not denigrating the library. My experiences at the library, even as a child, there was a library, a little branch down in Winnipeg, down the street, and it was in the basement of a Loblaw store, of all places. And the two women who ran it were fantastic. So we were two kids, uh, I can't remember how we were, seven, maybe, grade one, two, somewhere, somewhere in there. And we wanted to know, we were really interested in drag racing, you know, on television, or we actually got our fathers to take us to a drag race once. And um, I remember asking, I think it was Timothy's mother, both our mothers were, um, he lived around this horseshoe crescent from me. His mother was also a nurse, as my mother was. And we asked her, so how does the how does the internal combustion, I don't think we knew that word yet, internal combustion engine work? And she said, well, there is a library. And we went, okay, so down we went, little seven-year-olds, and went downstairs, and the lady uh, behind the counter says, can I help you? And so we told her, and she said, absolutely, and she took us right to the shelf and brought us a, a, I remember really clearly the range of books she brought out. She had no idea. She knew roughly what our age was, but starting out with a really simple thing, and we kind of took the really simple thing because, Mm -hmm. you know, why not? And she says, there's more where that came from. And we kept going back. And she also started introducing us to books as well, like fictional books yeah. as well. 
And the other woman who worked there was equally kind and pleasant and eternally patient with us. And because uh, we were quite rambunctious boys, and, uh, but we weren't ever shunned or anything else. Mm-hmm. So that was my experience at library. It's probably why I like working in children's because I remember that. So I mean, that's why I ended up there. I had no idea. Yeah. And that's the experience you want to offer other people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's stuck with me all this time, right? I can't remember what I really wanted to be at the time, but I remember the line very quick, yeah. quite clearly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I said the royal okay. us. <laughs> uh, Jen, Jennifer out there somewhere. Jenny in the, absentia. In absentia. Good. So that was our interview, or my interview, with Jim Drake. Again, Jenny was on holiday, so it was me going solo. Um, the audio was a bit different than usual, but I just wanted to mention if you if you are interested in helping, helping out the show, helping Jenny and I with our dream of getting a microphone, a second microphone, maybe a microphone that can record two people at one time so that I don't accidentally record more interviews on my laptop, there's a couple of ways you can support. You're going to be fantastic. So the easiest and cheapest way is if you, however you're listening to this, if you're listening to this on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you are, um, it helps a, a great deal if you could subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to or make us a favorite if it's a platform that does that. Um, rate and or review us wherever you're listening. Um, I know some people don't have iTunes. Um, iTunes is a good place to, it's more straightforward to rate and review. But if you're listening on Stitcher or on SoundCloud, if you click around, there's ways you can leave comments. Um, and every little bit helps. Um, it helps us with our dream to one day have have a proper functioning microphone that I understand how it works so I don't accidentally record more interviews on a laptop. Um, you can also, it helps us too, if you leave a comment um, or rating on our Facebook page or if you go on our Twitter or on our Instagram, like some of our posts or reblog them, just so more people can find out about the show. The more people who know about the show, the more people who listen, uh, the better it is for the world and specifically for us. So I wanted to thank, um, actually no, I'm not going to thank CFCR because they had very little to do with this episode. You can also support us monetarily, which actually is also or free. Um, So if you go to Audible, you know Audible, the website that all the podcasts talk about. I use Audible myself. Um, I find it really great to get sometimes a book comes out and you can have the audiobook right there to listen to. I like to listen to a lot of um, memoirs by comedians like uh, Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. I remember somebody on a podcast said, you can get that from Audible. I was like, you can. And then I subscribed and here I am years later. Anyway, if you were interested in trying Audible, you can get a free trial and um, it helps us out if you get your free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash you were going tbf um, so that's audibletrial.com slash you were going tbf and then that helps them know that you learned about it from us and then and then audible helps us out with our dream our dream to get one day a microphone um and I do also want to acknowledge CFCR Radio in Saskatoon, which is a, a lovely community radio station. You can listen to it even if you're not in Saskatoon. Just go to cfcr.ca. There's tons of really interesting programming, um, lots of cultural programming, music programming, lots to listen to. It's great. 
and you can listen to them. So from their website, cfcr.ca, I think they're also on TuneIn Radio and other places. Because CFCR is very kindly letting us use their studio sometimes to record things such as this thing I am recording right now. They're great people, and if you want to support CFCR, um, there's a link from cfcr.ca where you can donate money to them. So my name is Ann Foster. Jenny Ryan did not help with this interview because she was off having a lot of fun. I want I don't want Jenny to feel bad. I don't want to feel like she didn't help. It's like she wasn't there because she was off having fun, so I was doing the work. Anyway, um, we'll talk to you next time, and thanks so much for listening to our podcast. Bye.